The following presentation was produced by the Buddhist Society of Victoria. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. Okay, everyone, so let's uh, continue where we left off. And um, so we have just been looking at uh, what is a summary of the teachings of the Buddha, and he summarizes his teachings as the 37 aids to awakening. And uh, I have a very similar discourse, the one is coming up next. It's a slightly different, uh, but basically uh, the essence is the same. I'm not sure now why exactly I included it, but it's, it's there, so we might as well do it, I suppose. Uh, and a similar kind of theme, what actually is the essence uh, of the teaching of the Buddha. And this um, little extract is taken from the Mahaparinibbana Sutta, uh, uh, the Buddha's passing away. And uh, uh, this sutta is one of the great suttas in the Pali Canon. Uh, it also exists in Chinese translation, about three different versions. Uh, and it's one of those beautiful suttas about the end of the Buddha's life. Uh, and uh, because it is about the end of the Buddha's life, it is particularly interesting. Uh, it's also information that you don't find anywhere else. Uh, and uh, things like, you know, you can imagine the Buddha is coming to his last few days uh, and he wants to lay down what is the inheritance uh, what is actually going to be passed on to future generations, what is the essence uh, of his teachings and all of these things, uh, how the Sangha, how the lay people uh, can live in harmony without the Buddha, uh, and all of these things are what he talks about uh, in this particular sutta. So it's very has a lot of interesting aspects to it, uh, and this is why this uh, particular teaching is, is uh, in that context is particularly interesting. Yeah. So, um, yeah, let's just get on with it uh, and see what the... Uh, see what he has to say here. Uh, so first of all, the Buddha went with uh, Ananda to the hall with the peaked roof uh, and said to him, Go, Ananda, gather all the mendicants staying in, vis in the vicinity of Vesali together in the assembly hall. Yes, sir, replied Ananda. He did what the Buddha asked, went up to him, bowed, stood to one side and said to him, Sir, the mendicant Sangha has assembled. Please, sir, go at your convenience. Uh, so here we have the Buddha. He has now arrived at uh, Vesali. Uh, I should maybe say, first of all, that the translation you see here is kind of unusual. You see this word mendicants. When you see the word mendicants, then you know straight away he was translated this sutta. Uh, that means Ajahn Sujato, when you see the word mendicants. Uh, so if you are, because this is what he uses, instead of using monks or, you know, because monks is kind of uh, only looking after the male part of the Sangha, uh, but by saying mendicants, it's a gender neutral term, uh, which is kind of nice because then you kind of, it's, it's more inclusive, which I think is very, uh, it's a nice thing to do. Uh. And uh, it's important to remember, one of the things I always like to tell people when you read the suttas, uh, the Buddha very often says bhikkhus, uh, he says monks. But just because it says bhikkhus doesn't mean that the teaching is only for the monks. Because uh, the way that the uh, Pali, the language worked in those days, uh, you always address uh, the t teaching or whatever it is to the most senior people in the assembly. Uh, because the bhikkhus used to be the most senior, because the bhikkhus were obviously ordained first, uh, they'd been around for the longest time, uh, the Buddha would say bhikkhus. Uh, yeah, but there would probably be bhikkhunis there, uh, very likely would be lay people there. Uh, maybe there were ghosts present, yeah, maybe there were devas present, who knows uh, what the assembly included. Uh, 
Martians, no, probably not Martians because they have a hard time, but you know, any, anything basically uh, could be present. Uh, so when you use the word bhikkhus, uh, it is not limited to, to, just, uh, uh, you know, to just monks. And this is an important point. Uh, so by saying mendicants, we're already being a bit more inclusive. Uh, uh, these translations, by the way, they are found on Sutta Central, uh, uh, which is Adan Sudhatu's kind of baby uh, uh, it is the only website in the world where you find all the suttas together in one place. It's a very nice little website. So if you want to read the more of these suttas, you'd like this kind of translation, then you can go there. Uh, and some of my translations are also found there, actually. Uh, so um, uh, that is so. The Buddha is now has now come to Vesali. Uh, this is the last journey of the Buddha. Uh, the Buddha is starting out in Rajagaha. Rajaka being the capital of the ancient Magadan Empire, uh, uh, and which later on developed to become the great empire of King Ashoka. It started out in Magadha. Uh, yeah, and the capital of Magadha was Pataliputta. And Pataliputta is the present city of Patna. Yeah, for those of you who have been to India, uh, you just come from India, is that right? Yeah? Okay. You have been to Patna. It doesn't look so glorious now anymore. <laughs> it's really kind of run down and... Uh, and uh, not a very beautiful city, but uh, that is what used to be the ancient capital of the Magadan Empire about 2,200 years ago or thereabouts. Uh, so he uh, starts out in Rajagaha, and then he walks north, uh, he crosses the river Ganges, uh, and then he comes to Vesali. This is uh, one of the stops on the, on the way, and he spends three months in Vesali on the way to Kushinara, which eventually is where he passes away. Uh, and of course, Vesali is one of the places you can visit when you go to India. And you can find it today. Again, also not very impressive. It's a very kind of simple site in Vesali. Uh, but still, it is kind of nice to go there, to know the Buddha was here. Yeah? You get a feeling of walking in the footsteps of the Buddha, which actually is quite cool. Yeah? Actually, it's a bit kind of scary almost. Uh, and it is scary because when you, what is fascinating about by going to India, and if you are serious about Buddhism and you're interested in these teachings, it actually makes them come alive a little bit. Yeah, you read the suttas and you see all these stories about people and places and things and geographical location, all this kind of stuff, and it kind of looks a bit like a story. You wonder, is this real? You know, did someone write this down? And then you go to India and you actually find these places. They actually exist. In the present day, you see the formations, you see the mountains. Uh, they call the Gijakuta here. The Gijakuta is the vulture peak. Uh, and you go then, lo and behold, there it is, the vulture peak. Uh, yeah, and it looks a bit like a vulture. Uh, that's what they say anyway. I can't really recognize it. But some people say it looks like a vulture. Uh, and then you see the Boar's Cave. The Boar's Cave is where uh, Venerable Sariputta was enlightened. Uh, and then you have a sutta, the sutta where he was enlightened. Yeah, right there in the Majjhimanikaya, number seventy. What is it now? 70 something, 70, whatever, I can't remember now which number it is. Diganaka Sutta, 74, I think it is, in the middle length sayings. And then you go to the Boar's Cave, this is what I did when I was there, and you sit in the Boar's Cave and then you read out the Diganaka Sutta, yeah? and you're waiting for people to get enlightened there. Because that's what happened to Sariputta when he was there. And it doesn't usually happen, but you give it a try. <laughs> And so this is very, it's kind of powerful when you are in those locations and you actually, you know, you do the same thing that they did at the time of the Buddha. It is a bit kind of makes your hair stand on end, as it says in the suttas. So, um, and uh, there's many cases like that when you travel around India and you recognize exactly 
as it is described in the suttas, so it is now. India is this ancient civilization. And when you go there, you, have, you get this feeling it's been like that for a long, long time. Everything looks like it's two and a half thousand years old when you go there. You know, it's a bit run down. Just <laughs> and not, I'm exaggerating a bit, of course, but uh, you, know, you get that, roughly that kind of feeling. And you recognize things from the time of the Buddha. The places that were famous in those days for certain things are still famous for the similar kind of things. The places where there were baths, hot baths in those days, you still, still today, Indians are still bathing in the same hot baths they were bathing two and a half thousand years ago. So uh, this is what is uh, exciting about this. So uh, if you have the opportunity, uh, it can be very nice to uh, go to India and just get a feel for it. Uh, go to some of the out-of-the-way places. Uh, some of the places are too touristified these days. Uh, too much, uh, too many people. Uh, yeah, too many kind of. I remember when I went there last time, uh, three or four years ago, and uh, we went to Savati, and there were fourteen busloads of Korean tourists coming exactly the same time. Uh, and these Korean tourists were not very quiet. They didn't come for meditation practice. They came for, I don't know exactly what, but they, to make a lot of noise anyway. So you try to sit meditation, and you think, oh, these Koreans, please go away. <laughs> it didn't work. So ill will never works, right? That's the problem with it. So this is Vesali. So you can go there in the present day, and that is one of the really nice things about this. So... Uh, the Buddha was staying here in the hall of the, with the peaked roof. Uh, this is one of his favorite uh, places to stay when he was staying in Vesali, uh, in the uh, great Mahavana, the great wood. Or was it the Andavana? I think it's the Mahavana. Huh? doesn't say here for some reason. Huh? Um, and then he says to Venerable Ananda, go and gather together all the mendicants in the vicinity of Vesali. Huh? So the point here is that he has something to proclaim. Yeah, that's why he says this. Uh, Usually the Buddha doesn't say this kind of thing, but here he does. So obviously what's going to come now is important. Then the Buddha went to the assembly hall where he sat down on the prepared seat and addressed the mendicants. So mendicants, having carefully memorized those things I have taught you from my direct knowledge, you should cultivate, develop, and make much of them so that this spiritual practice uh, may last for a long time. Uh, that would be for the welfare and the happiness of the people, for the benefit, welfare, and happiness of gods and humans. Uh, and what are those things I have taught you from my direct knowledge? So again, you have this very similar to the previous sutta, uh, the idea that the Buddha has understood certain things about the essence of life. Yeah? And this is kind of what the whole purpose of the Dhamma is that you wake up to what life, the, what, you know, what, what is life really is all about. What is the meaning of life? What is purpose? Uh, how can we achieve something that is truly meaningful and profound? Uh, so the Buddha has uh, awakened to this uh, and then he says to the bhikkhus, first of all, you should memorize it. Uh, yeah, and uh, that obviously is again related to the idea of the oral literature at the time. Uh, uh, but also has to do with understanding of what, what is going on. Uh, and then once you have memorized it, uh, then you should cultivate it, uh, develop it, and make much of it uh, so that the spiritual life may last for a long time. Uh. And this is the essential thing here, is this idea of cultivating uh, and making much of these teachings. Uh. This is what it's really all about. That's the whole purpose of these things, uh, to realize the same thing that the Buddha realized. Uh. It is one thing to have it on a piece of paper or to have it memorized, uh, 
uh, it's already uh, kind of useful. Uh, but the Dhamma really becomes only becomes powerful uh, once you start to realize these things. Uh, and uh, you will notice that sometimes uh, you may notice that you meet people who are kind of special. They have like a special uh, feeling about them yeah, because they are very peaceful or they're very kind or they, they don't really have any anger or desires or all these kind of things. Uh, and when you see that, it already gives you a sense of uplift. It gives you a feeling that there is something more in this world than just the ordinary things in life. Uh, and this is kind of the purpose of this, to see someone who is practicing well already gives you a glimpse into the reality of the Dhamma, what the Dhamma can do for you. When you realize the Dhamma, it changes you. You become a different person. Yeah, you, don't, you don't become crazy. You don't have crazy wisdom. You have peaceful wisdom, kind wisdom. You have hasapanya. You know, we have a nun in Perth called Hasapanya. Have you heard about her? She's the head nun of our monastery in Perth. And Hasapanya means laughing wisdom. Yeah, so she is the laughing wisdom nun. <laughs> kind of nice. And Hasapanya in the suttas is an epithet or it is a description of people who are anagam, is non-returners. Once you become a non-returner, you have Hasapanya, you have laughing wisdom. Yeah? Why is that? Because you are light-hearted. You like to just mess around. You like to have a good time. You like to enjoy yourself. You're Hasapanya. And this is something that we sometimes forget. Yeah? It, the idea here is that when you have real insight into something, it actually makes you into a different kind of person. You become more at ease, more relaxed, and all these kind of things. There's a famous story which Adam Brahm likes to tell. I'm not sure if this is self-serving or what, but this is the story he tells anyway. He says that when he was a, a, a young monk, when he was a young monk, <laughs> one of those stories, when, when I was a young monk, that's what, usually how he starts his stories. Then we were real practitioners, we didn't mess around, that kind of story. But anyway, when he was a young monk, he says that he was staying at Ajahn Shah's monastery in Wat Papong. He said, Ajahn Shah, he used to be so funny that the monks and the second monk at Wat Papong in those days was Lumpur Liam. Lumpur Liam is now the abbot of Wat Papong, very famous. And he kind of considered one of the very best monks in that monastery. And Ajahn Shah used to make so much fun that Lumpur Liam, yeah, this other monk who was really kind of well-respected or whatever, he would laugh so hard, he would roll around on the ground holding his tummy because he was kind of afraid it was going to burst or something like that. This is kind of, this is kind of behind the scenes. Yeah? Don't tell you I told you. Don't, don't say anyone I told you this because I might get into trouble. <laughs> but this is, uh, this is kind of what it is like sometimes because you just like having a good time. So you just kind of mess around a bit uh, and you enjoy yourself. Uh, so if you want to laugh and you want to roll around on the ground uh, and holding your tummy, you are allowed to do so. Uh. <laughs> You're not obliged to do so, but you can. Uh. It is, there's a good precedent for that. Uh. So... Um, uh, so it's so important to actually cultivate these teachings, uh, yeah, to achieve that hasapanya and all of these kind of things. And it is important because for two reasons. Uh, first of all, because you can tell, uh, you can see when someone is really special. It is kind of it. It shines through the person, uh, and that gives rise to confidence and faith in its own right. Uh, Remember one of the things that the Buddha says in the suttas is that when you have faith or confidence in somebody, you should observe them. You should see whether they are worthy of that faith and confidence. It shouldn't be a blind thing. It should be a decision that you make yourself that is conscious. Then you have faith and confidence. You don't, if, even if the whole world says that this person is an arahant, don't believe it blindly. Observe for yourself. Then you have some grounds or basis for making a decision about these things. So this is the first thing, that it actually gives a beautiful example. 
But the second reason is that the Dhamma itself uh, is, uh, is always uh, subject to interpretation. Yeah, that's why we have arguments in the Buddhist world. It means this. No, it means that. Uh, yeah, I'm sure you've heard some of those arguments. Uh, and uh, uh, so what do we need? We need areas. We need those people uh, who have insight into these teachings uh, so that we can actually uh, explain them in the proper way so we understand what is going on. Uh. So these are the two sides of uh, of um, uh, practice that are very important, and then we can carry these teachings on into the future as a consequence of that. Uh, without that practice, uh, everything dies down very quickly. Uh, just reading words on a piece of paper is not enough. Uh, yeah, you need to see kind of these things, uh, how they actually, what they look like in real life, uh, and then they become far more powerful because of that. Uh. So uh, and then you carry on that spiritual life, yeah, for the welfare and happiness of gods and humans in the future. Yeah. And then what are these uh, things? And again, exactly the same thing as last time: uh, the four mindfulness meditations, uh, the four right efforts, uh, the four bases of spiritual power, uh, the five faculties, the five powers, uh, the seven awakening factors, uh, and the noble eightfold path. Uh, these are the things I have taught from my direct knowledge. Uh, Having carefully memorized them, you should cultivate, develop, and make much of them so that this spiritual practice may last for a long time. That would be for the welfare and happiness of the people, for the benefit, welfare, and happiness of gods and humans. So uh, again, uh, just the point here is that this is what the Buddha has awakened to, these 37 Factors of awakening, uh, 37, 37 aids to awakening. Uh, uh, so this is really a summary of the entire Buddha's teachings, uh, which is very interesting, considered again how practical they are, uh, and uh, something to bear in mind. So with that as background and backdrop to what comes next, now we can discuss some of these things in a bit more detail. Uh, I'm going to be discussing all of the uh, various sets that are there. There are seven sets altogether, and uh, I'm not going to look very too much at the Noble Eightfold Path uh, because we focus so much on the Noble Eightfold Path. Otherwise, uh, I'm going to put the most of the focus on the other ones. Uh, uh, but of course, when we look at the other ones, uh, we're also considering the Noble Eightfold Path because these are all integrated with each other. Uh, and uh, I'm going to start with the four right efforts uh, because. Uh, uh, in the actual sequence there, the f mindfulness comes first, uh, but in the sequence of, the, of practice, four right efforts comes before mindfulness. I'm going to start with that, uh, then move on to mindfulness afterwards. Uh. So this is uh, from a small little sutta in the Connected Discourses of the Buddha. Uh, this is the uh, Connected Discourses on Right Effort. Uh. And... Uh, so this is how it goes. This is the standard description of right effort found everywhere in the suttas. This is how the Buddha talks about it, and then you have to kind of flesh it out based on that. At Savati, there the Buddha said, Mendicants, there are these four right efforts. What for? It's when a mendicant generates enthusiasm, tries, makes an effort, exerts the mind and strives so that bad, unskillful qualities don't arise. They generate enthusiasm, try, make an effort, exert the mind and strive so that bad, unskillful qualities that have arisen are given up. 
They generate enthusiasm, try, make an effort, exert their mind, and strive so that skillful qualities arise. And they generate enthusiasm, try, make an effort, exert the mind, and strive so that skillful qualities that have arisen remain and and are not lost, but increase, mature, and are completed by development. These are the four right efforts. So um, they don't sound too exciting. Yeah, it sounds pretty. Uh, this kind of passage is one of the reasons why sometimes people give up reading the suttas because they say it's so. Uh, it's a bit tedious, and uh, it's, it's true, isn't it? It's a bit kind of tedious, the same thing four times with tiny little variations. But, um, of course, uh, the reason why it does appear a bit tedious to us is because it comes from an oral culture, and, uh, but uh, the message usually is still very important, so it's actually worthwhile reflecting on these things regardless. So let's just look at this very briefly before we um, come to the next suttas, which flesh it out a little bit. So the first one here is about uh, avoiding skill, unskillful qualities from arising. Yeah? This is often called sense restraint in the suttas. Uh, you restrain. This is where the main problem arises. If we don't restrain our senses, then usually what happens? One of two things happens. Uh, either you come to uh, crave or desire for the things that arise, uh, or you, you have the opposite effect. You have aversion or ill will towards things that you don't like. Yeah? Yeah, so by restraining your senses, and in Buddhism we're talking about the six senses, this includes the mind as well, by restraining that we're actually avoiding these desires and ill will from arising in the mind. This is the purpose of this. And of course if you can avoid those things from arising in the first place, there's no need for the second one, which is overcoming these things. You will already have a mind that is beautifully even when you go through the world. And this is one of those great benefits of these sort of practices, uh, is to have that evenness where you go through the world uh, largely unaffected by the things around you, uh, and you're kind of standing back a little bit. Uh, you're not so involved as, as you would otherwise be. Uh, and you can stand back, uh, and you can observe, and you can be that passenger on the train I was talking about yesterday, rather than being the conductor of the train or the conductor of the bus uh, who decides where you're going to go. Uh, instead, you kind of stand back and you allow things to be here. Uh, not as involved. And that leads to a very peaceful and very even mind state, which is very uh, delightful and nice to take with you uh, throughout your daily life. Uh, so this is uh, what uh, this is about. Uh, and uh, so the main, uh, when we talk about unskillful qualities or unwholesome qualities, uh, the main thing that we are talking about is ill will. Uh, Ill will is the most important one, yeah, getting upset, getting angry, all that kind of stuff. Uh, but the other side is also the desires, the desire that sometimes kind of get out of hand. Uh, so these are the two things. Of those two things, uh, the most important one is ill will. Uh, yeah, so if you're going to try to reduce any particular defilement in your life, uh, don't worry too much about the desires. Uh, Worry about the ill will. And if you're able to reduce the ill will, you find that desires also tend to drop off. It's kind of nice, isn't it? Yeah, so worry about the ill will and the desires also drop off. Why is that the case? And the reason why that is the case is because if you have ill will, it tends to be a very unpleasant experience. So when you have an unpleasant experience, uh, then often you try to find a solution to that. And the Buddha says that for ordinary people, the solution to suffering, uh, and ill will is one of those sufferings, uh, is to seek happiness in the sensual pleasures of the world. Uh, 
Yeah, so it tends to give rise to craving when you have a, a when you have suffering, and that's why I was saying yesterday that the idea that suffering leads to craving. This is where that idea arises from. It's not, it's not wrong, it's true, but it's not what the Buddha said in the Second Noble Truth. He said the exact opposite, craving leads to suffering. But both are right, but in their own, at their own right time and the right place. So these are what we talk about when we talk about removing unskillful qualities, how to avoid ill will. So what does it mean that you make an effort, that you generate enthusiasm? This is chandang janeti. Chanda is like desire. Yeah, it's a particular type of desire. But uh, Ajahn Sudrato has translated as enthusiasm, which I think is quite nice, uh, because uh, desire is usually uh, usually means something negative in Buddhism. Uh, so what does all of this mean? Uh, you exert your mind and you try, you make an effort. Uh, and this is the most interesting thing about this formula, to understand what this actually means. Because in ordinary life, if you feel that you're getting angry with somebody, or you're feeling you're getting a bit negative or whatever, the only tool usually at our disposal is to use force to remove those thoughts. You don't want to have them there. You try to suppress them. You try to push them out of the way. You try to get rid of them somehow. And uh, uh, and the reason for that is because we haven't really got any insight or understanding in how these things work. Yeah, to be able to use some other tool, you need some kind of insight. If you have no insight or understanding or clarity about what these things are, there's only willpower left. And so you think, you, I mean, when you come to this formula, you might therefore think that this all refers to willpower. Yeah? Push the anger out of the way, and then bang, you are, have no anger, you have metta afterwards. But the problem is that it doesn't really work like that. If you push the anger out of the way and you try to suppress it and get rid of it, uh, you tend just to kind of hide it under the surface. Uh, it becomes like a kettle, a kettle that is boiling. yeah. And with a kettle that is boiling, all the steam wants to come out. Uh, but if you hold the lid down, uh, you might be able to hold it down for a few seconds, uh, but then it really explodes uh, yeah, when you kind of lift it off afterwards. Uh. And uh, it's a little bit like that with anger. If you suppress it too much, if you are really angry, even if you are a little bit angry, then sometimes it comes back with a vengeance later on. You haven't really dealt with it. You haven't really done anything with it that actually makes it disappear completely. And that is the problem there. So there is another way of dealing with these defilements. And this is kind of what is so powerful and important about this. And that other way of dealing with the defilements is not using willpower, but using wisdom and wisdom power instead. That is the right way. So when the Buddha says that we should generate energy, we should use the mind, we should try and we should strive to do these things, what he actually means, maybe not always, but what he means 80-90% of the time, is to use our wisdom, our insight into how our minds work to overcome these things. And this is something I will be talking about because this is so crucial. If you want to develop your mind, this is actually what you have to do to be able to move your mind away from the habits and the traits that are normally there, from the unwholesome ones and to the wholesome ones instead. This is really the way to do these things. So how is it done? I will look at this more later on, but I think it's because I like to repeat myself a, a little bit. I think it's good to kind of uh, start with this maybe already just to give you a rough idea how this is done. Uh, and the way this is done is to understand the causes for ill will. Uh, why is it that you get angry sometimes? Uh, or maybe you never get angry. Is anyone here who never gets angry at all? Uh, <laughs> 
maybe there is, yeah. Sometimes you get people on the retreat like this and you think, whoa, they hardly ever get angry. What a wonderful thing that is. Uh, but uh, if you never got angry, you've already been anagam. you almost be enlightened already. Uh, so that would be cause for celebration. We could have a party if that was the case. Uh. <laughs> so uh, why does it arise? Uh? And if you look very careful, you will see that there's always reasons why you get angry. And what it has to do with is how you look at that object that is making you angry. And usually the things that make us angry in life are other people. Other people are the most difficult thing in life. Yeah. Usually, at least for most of us. Yeah. And because of that, it is a particular way of looking at the other person that makes you upset, makes you irritated, makes you whatever it is. You're looking at a person, seeing the fault, seeing the flaws, seeing the thing that oppresses you, seeing the thing that you find difficult to bear, and then you get, uh, you get angry as a consequence. The Pali word is patiga. Patiga means like resistance. Yeah, you're seeing something that you actually resist. You don't really want to see it, and then you get irritated as a consequence. So what you have to do to have a sense of sense restraint here, you have to notice when your mind starts to seeing the negative qualities. You know that if you continue watching this, you're going to get angry or upset very soon. Yeah, And because you know that, you have the ability to turn your attention in a different direction. Instead of looking at that thing which causes a resistance inside of you, instead you look at something else in that person or you don't look at the person at all, or whatever it is that you do. Yeah, You do something else, and then you avoid that anger and ill will from arising. Yeah? That is the basic idea of how this works. And I will talk more about how to do this later on. But it's not very hard. Yeah, It's actually quite easy once you get the hang of it. It's just that you often we lack the mindfulness, or we lack the... Uh, we, we lack the we don't remember the teaching. Yeah? In daily life, we're doing so many things. You forget these things. It may seem incredibly obvious right here in Anglesey, but when you get back to Melbourne, it's not so obvious anymore. Huh? Yeah? <laughs> or you get back to wherever it is. Huh? And this is part of the, part of the problem. Huh? So that is the, the first one of these uh, 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 four right efforts. Yeah? This is the effort to restrain, it's often called. Called, but uh, the fact that it uses a word like restrain doesn't necessarily mean that you have to use a lot of effort. It is more about using wisdom than using effort. And we have the second one. The second one is about uh, uh, making an effort and exert in the mind so that any risen, unskillful qualities are given up. So if you are already angry, yeah, if you're already upset with something, how do you get rid of it? And uh, sometimes that is, can be quite hard. Once you get upset, it tends to kind of linger in the mind for a while very often. Uh, but we should use similar kind of reflections uh, to then give up any kind of negative qualities in the mind. You're feeling a bit irritated? Okay, try, we try our very best to give up by reflecting on the consequences of uh, uh, being angry. Uh, what are the consequences of being angry? Well, it leads to suffering. Yeah, this is one of the big consequences. Uh, and uh, you may understand that a little bit, uh, why anger leads to suffering. Uh, but if you understood it fully, you would never get angry. Uh. Yeah? But, and this, is kind of, this tells you a little bit about how the depth to which you understand something. Uh. If you haven't understood it, if you are still getting angry, it means you know, haven't understood fully the suffering inherent in these things. Uh. It's actually very difficult to understand it fully. Uh. You have some idea, but not fully. Uh. And I, I've always used the simile of the... A hot plate, yeah, the similar hot plate is that you, 
uh, you're in your house, you have a hot plate, uh, and you don't know somebody else has turned it on. Uh, you can't tell because it's just a metal plate or whatever. And then by accident, you put your hand on that plate. Uh, it's really hot, yeah? What happens when you do that? Uh, there's an automatic reaction. Your hand just comes off by itself, uh, as if there was some kind of magnetic field repelling you. Uh, you don't have to think, should I remove the hand, uh, yeah? Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> Too late, yeah? You already burnt yourself because of that. Uh, so you don't have to think that. Uh, uh, and it's exactly the same thing with anger. If you fully understand that anger is like a hot plate, uh, you don't have to think, should I not be angry? You just won't become ang angry because the mind is repelled by the, angry, by the anger in the same way that the hand is repelled uh, or repulsed from that hot plate. Uh, it's exactly the same thing here. So sometimes it's worthwhile simply contemplating why anger is, is problematic, yeah? to remember that, to remember the long-term consequences of these things, uh, uh, because that will help you with, that, uh, uh, with the effort to avoid it in the future, especially when your life is very busy uh, and you forget your priorities. Uh, yesterday I was talking about prioritizing the spiritual life over the worldly life. Uh, it's very hard to do that consistently, yeah? especially in ordinary life. Uh, even as a monk, sometimes you forget these things, uh, let alone in uh, most people's lives, uh, because you get so busy. You have your families, you have your work, you have all these kinds of things. Uh, and of course, it is so easy for these things to uh, get an inverse reverse that idea of priorities and you uh, the spiritual life you kind of put on the bottom of the pile huh? and then you have a problem because of that yeah. so we overcome these things and i will talk more about this in a second as well huh? uh, and then we have the uh, you generate enthusiasm etc for the skillful qualities to arise yeah and uh, that would be something like when you deliberately reflect on something that gives rise to joy. Yeah, that is kind of getting spiritual qualities to arise. And when we talk about joy in Buddhism, we had these two kinds of joy. There's worldly joy and there is spiritual joy. And you have to know how to make a distinction between the worldly joy and the spiritual joy. And the worldly joy is like when you go down the uh, you go to the shops and you buy something. Yay, look at this. I found this beautiful thing in the shops. Yay, I'm so happy here. That's worldly joy. Yeah. So that's why we don't do that on the retreats. <laughs> uh, and the spiritual joy is the joy you have when you think about something that you have done. You've done an act of kindness uh, and you feel happy because of the spiritual quality that you uh, have inside of yourself. And that gives you joy. And there is a very important distinction between the worldly joy and the spiritual joy. Uh, the worldly joys tend to be conjoined with craving. Uh, they're not really peaceful. Yeah, you are whatever it is that you are doing. Uh, there's always an underlying craving there, driving you on, driving you on to what you're doing now, but also driving you on to new things again in the future. Uh, it's not really peaceful. Uh, but the spiritual joy is very different. Uh, when you feel the joy of having lived your life well, having done the things in the right way, uh, it actually tends to be, you tend to be peaceful inside at the same time. Uh, and the reason is because this is a psychological joy. It doesn't come from some sort of external source, uh, like, uh, you know, something you have just bought or whatever, a nice meal or whatever it is that you had. It doesn't come from anything outside. It's directly related to your own psychology. Uh, 
Yeah, it is something inside of you that is growing. Yeah? And that sense of joy that you have, it leads directly to contentment because you're feeling good about yourself. You're feeling happy in the present moment and then you feel content. And when you feel content, when you feel satisfied, well, that is exactly the meaning of not having craving. Yeah? Contentment is by definition the opposite of craving. Yeah? So this is a, a very important distinction. Yeah? And this is why the spiritual joy... Yeah, called the Niramisa Sukha in Pali, the spiritual joy is far more valuable than the worldly joy or the worldly happiness, if you like, because it doesn't have the same degree of satisfaction, doesn't have the same degree of feeling complete, feeling full in yourself. And this is why that distinction is so important. So please notice that on this retreat, if you get a little bit of joy in your meditation practice, notice the quality of that joy. See what it does to you. And you will feel that there's something special there that is very, very valuable and very meaningful as well. So that is the uh, of giving rise to the, to the skillful qualities. And the last one is um, that you should... Uh, generate enthusiasm, try, etc., to strive so the skillful qualities that have arisen remain. They are not lost, but increase, mature, and are completed by development. These are the four right efforts. So this last one is just uh, staying with the breath, yeah, watching the breath, and allowing the breath to develop until one day, bingo, yeah. Light goes on. Yes, now I know what's happening. Now I understand what these teachings are all about. Uh, that's kind of what that is about. Uh, we'll talk much more about that later on, uh, because that obviously is a core aspect of a meditation retreat: is to develop the mind through meditation practice. Uh, and we're going to have a look at the uh, beautiful Anapanasati Sutta very soon, uh, which is specifically about that. Uh, so now let us uh, look at these four right efforts in the, from a slight couple of slightly different angles. Uh, and tease out some of the implications of these. Somebody has given me tea, that's very nice. Yeah, I said before that you know when we have Dhamma talks, then we have sometimes we have the monks present, we have the ghost and the devas present. Well, the devas are already here because they put the tea here. So we know <laughs> the devas are definitely present. We know that. That's very good. Okay, so um, this next little sutta is another one that I usually I like to read out on retreats. And it's from the Anguttara Nikaya, the numerical discourses of the Buddha, the Tuza. And uh, I like to tell you a little bit always about the sources, where these things come from, because then it will make it easier for you to find the suttas yourself in the future, if you're interested. Uh, so this is the numerical discourses, which is uh, divided up into 11 books, the ones, the twos, all the way up to the elevens. Uh, so this is the twos, and the reason it's called the twos is because it's a it's composed of two items, yeah, two items in the list. That's why it's the Anguttara twos. Uh. And uh, you can see the little number there on the sheet. It says AN 2.12. So AN is Anguttara Nikaya, numerical discourses. 2 is the 2s. And the 12 is the sutta number. So it's a 12th sutta in that particular collection. Okay, so this is what the uh, Buddha has to say. Bhikkhus, yeah, or bhikkhunis, or, uh, or, or upasakas and upasakas, everyone. Uh, there are these two powers. Uh, what 
Two, the power of reflection and the power of development. And what is the power of reflection? Here someone reflects thus. Bodily misconduct has a bad result in the present life and in the future life. Verbal misconduct has a bad result in the present life and in the future life. Mental misconduct has a bad result in the present life and in the future life. Having reflected thus, they abandon bodily misconduct and develop good bodily conduct. They abandon verbal misconduct and develop good verbal conduct. They abandon mental misconduct and develop mental good conduct. He maintains, uh, they maintain themselves in purity. This is called the power of reflection. And what is the power of development? Here a, uh, a mendicant or someone develops the awakening factor of mindfulness that is based upon seclusion, um, dispassion or fading away, and cessation, maturing in release. They develop the awakening factor of discrimination of phenomena, the awakening factor of energy, the awakening factor of joy or rapture, the awakening factor of tranquility, the awakening factor of stillness, and the awakening factor of equanimity that is based upon seclusion, fading away, cessation, maturing in release. This is called the power of development. These bhikkhus are the two powers. Exciting stuff, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, this, this is the thing. This is the th this is actually quite interesting. It may not be obvious to you at all why this is interesting. Uh, you may think, why is he reading this out? This doesn't this doesn't seem all that exciting. Uh, can't we have some more interesting things, uh, please? Uh, and uh, the idea, the point here is that to really understand the suttas, you have to kind of sometimes put them together. Uh, there are many suttas that are far more interesting than this, uh, that have nice stories that tells about the life of the Buddha and all these kind of things. Uh, so when you read the sutta, start with the ones that you actually interest you. Uh, yeah? Don't read the things that I necessarily read out, because to you it may not have any much meaning at all. Uh, read the things that you enjoy. Uh, but my job here is to point you to some things that are a bit more obscure and to kind of bring out the meaning of these things. Uh, yeah? So if you think this is kind of boring, uh, then... Uh, 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 my job is to kind of bring it, to kind of reduce the boredom and bring out the point of these things. Uh, so why am I bothering to read out this sutta? And the reason is because uh, uh, what is so interesting about this is the idea of how to overcome uh, the uh, uh, defilements or immorality uh, in our lives. Uh, that, this is kind of the point of this. Uh, Sometimes people think that the way that you purify your mind and you overcome immorality and you overcome the defilements of the mind is through meditation practice. Yeah, by Just by meditating, just by watching the breath, you actually overcome all of these problems and you create a more moral and a more pure person as a consequence. But this is not what this sutta says at all. In fact, meditation practice is the second part. It's called the power of development. Yeah, the bhavana bala. Bhavana is meditation or development in the, in the Pali language. Bala is power. So what we are doing with uh, what a meditation practice, what it does, it develops the mind, but it doesn't take away the defilements of the mind. The way to get rid of the defilements is through reflection. That's what this is saying. So if you want to overcome your 
uh, any kind of uh, residual immorality or is residual kind of not keeping the, the precepts or whatever it is, uh, getting more right speech uh, and even thinking in the right way, the right way to do that is by reflecting in the right way. Yeah, is it not necessary? Meditation may come in handy. It doesn't say meditation is bad, but that is not the basic way of overcoming all of these defilements. And this ties in directly with what I was saying before. I was saying before that the way to restrain the mind, if you want to restrain the mind properly, the way to do that is not by using willpower, it is by using wisdom. Yeah, and reflection and wisdom, they are two sides of the same coin. If you reflect in the appropriate way that is in accordance with the Dhamma or in accordance with reality or in accordance with how the mind works, then it's going to be wise reflection. That is the way to overcome these things. So um, uh, remember that. Yeah, It's one of those very simple but very kind of useful things. If you have a problem that you want to overcome, uh, think about it in the wise way. Go and ask somebody, somebody you trust, and ask them, well, what is the right way of thinking about this? Uh, yeah, I've got this ill will towards this person. What can I do to overcome that? Uh, and if you start inquiring in that way, uh, then uh, that is actually the appropriate way for overcoming these kind of problems. Uh, the same thing with morality. Yeah? It's interesting if you want to have right speech, uh, if you want to be able to... Uh, uh, treat people kindly uh, in your life. Uh, the way to do that, again, is by reflecting in the right way, not forcing yourself to be kind, not forcing yourself to speak in a certain way, but reflecting. And then because you reflect, because you understand, it tends to come much more naturally. Uh, yeah, You think, yeah, actually, you know, what am I doing when I'm uh, saying something bad? Well, what I'm doing, I'm causing problems for myself, uh, I'm causing problems for other people, uh, why do I want to cause problems for myself and other people? Actually, I don't want to do that at all. And then you get a more profound understanding of what is going on, and the mind naturally turns in a different direction. And this is why reflection is so, uh, is so powerful. Uh, so use reflection. And this is also one of the reasons why it is often useful to uh, read the suttas a little bit uh, and to reflect on the Dhamma. The Buddha very often talks about uh, uh, you read a sutta and that is not enough. Then you reflect on the teachings. Uh, yeah? You ask yourself, what do they mean for me? How do I put this into practice? Uh, and as you do that, then they start to come alive and they start to have a power in your life. Uh, they become the patti sankhana bala. Reflection is patti sankhana. You don't have to remember that because it's too hard to remember, but uh, that is the Pali word for it. Uh, and then you use that to enable you to, to do these things. Uh. So if you spend a little bit of time every day or you know, uh, even here on the retreat, you spend a bit of time uh, just to reflect on these things and to ask yourself, well, how can I actually do this in my own life? Uh, what are the problems that I have that I need to overcome? Uh, and uh, then you will, you will put these teachings to very good use if you do that. Uh, and then you gain a better insight into how to use them and what they're all about. Uh. And then, when you have reflected, you have used the power of reflection, the Patisankana Bala, in the right way, then you move on to the other one, which is the Bhavana Bala, the power of development or the power of meditation. And that is where these seven factors of awakening are developed through that particular development. And maybe I should just, sometimes people always ask about these things, I should probably just uh, very briefly explain what is going on here, uh, so that you have some idea what is happening. Uh, 
So we have the awakening factor of mindfulness. That is just mindfulness, the same as the satipatthana. Yeah, that's what it really means. Um, and then it says here that this slightly cryptic passage, based upon seclusion, dispassion, cessation, maturing, maturing in release. What does that mean? And uh, what it means is that uh, based upon seclusion means that if you want to develop your mind properly, you want to have success in your meditation practice, uh, you need a degree of seclusion. Yeah, That's why you come here to Anglesey to have a bit of seclusion, uh, because it's more difficult to have seclusion in the city of Melbourne. Uh, people were telling me yesterday how quickly Melbourne is growing, becoming larger and larger, as if it weren't large enough already, uh, and they're kind of adding more suburbs all the time. Uh, and that's why Anglesey is more appropriate for meditation practice. Uh, you are secluded from the busyness and all the sensuality of the city life. Uh, so, time to wake up. <laughs> so... Uh, <laughs> And so this is kind of the idea. If you really want to develop your mind, you have to withdraw it from the ordinary uh, uh, distractions of life. And only then is it really possible. And this is why also monastic life, if it, you know, if it is lived to its full potential, tends to be in the forest. You have forest monasteries, yeah, where you are away from the city, because that is where you kind of uh, are away from the problems and also away from the ordinary sensuality of the world. That's kind of the point of that. In Buddhism, we talk about two kinds of sensuality, the kaya viveka and the chitta viveka. Kaya viveka is the seclusion of the body, so you withdraw first of all, and once the body is secluded, then you also allow the mind to become secluded as well. Yeah, The body first, and then that becomes the cause for the mind to also become peaceful and quiet as a consequence. So it's based on seclusion, it's based upon, it says here, dispassion, uh, Pali word is viraga, it means like fading away. And uh, the idea here is that uh, as your meditation deepens, uh, things start to fade away. Uh, yeah, you will have noticed that just coming here and looking outside, lots of things have faded away already. Uh, yeah, all you have left is a few trees outside. Uh, and of course, the trees are quite peaceful compared to the normal things that we see in our life. Uh, and then you go inside of yourself in meditation. And as you go inside of yourself, your body starts to fade away. The senses start to fade away. Your thinking becomes more refined. Yeah, down and down and down. Uh, and uh, if you explain to somebody that... Uh, Meditation is a path into emptiness. It sounds scary for people. But if you just experience it for yourself, what that emptiness means, you know how beautiful it is and how powerful it is. The more still everything is, the more empty you are inside, the more beautiful is the experience that you're having. So things are fading away. Yeah, This whole meditation path is based on the idea of things fading away and eventually ceasing. It's also based on cessation as well. The more things cease, the more powerful the path is at that particular point. And then maturing in release means that as you mature all of these qualities, eventually you are released from, from what? From suffering, from problems, and you uh, become happy instead. So, uh, so this, this is what is meant by this. And then you have the awakening factor of discrimination of phenomena, I will talk more about what this means later on, but basically it means that you understand the qualities of the mind and you know how to distinguish them, the good ones and the bad ones. That's basically what it means. You have the awakening factor of energy. This is the energy of the mind. 
You have the joy of the mind, awakening factor of joy, rapture, piti in Pali. You have the awakening factor of tranquility. This is the pasadi. Yeah, so this is essentially what you're seeing here is the qualities of meditation practice. As the meditation becomes deeper, this is ideally what you see arising inside of you, one thing after the other. Then you have the awakening factor of stillness. Then you have the awakening factor of equanimity. This is where meditation becomes at its most profound. And this is roughly equivalent to the fourth of the jhanas at the very end there. So these are the two powers of the path. And I just wanted to point that out to you, just to make it clear what is... what. The idea how to overcome the unwholesome qualities. Uh, reflection and wisdom is one of the most important things uh, to enable us to do that. Uh, okay, uh, let us move on to the next little sutta. It's called Restraint. Uh, and uh, the, the uh, font is very small. Is it smaller than yours as well? Uh, or is it just mine? I have this tiny, tiny font. I, could I please have a magnifying glass? <laughs> <laughs> No, I can, I can just about make it out. So it should be okay. And um, this again is also from the uh, numerical discourses. Uh, this time from the fours, the book of fours. Uh, and it's sutta number 14. And this is an expansion on the idea of right effort. Uh, and it tells you in a bit more detail how right effort actually is practiced. Mendicants, there are these four efforts. What for? The effort to restrain, the effort to give up, the effort to develop, and the effort to preserve. And what mendicants is the effort to restrain? When a mendicant sees a sight with their eyes, they don't get caught up in the features and details. If the faculty of sight were left unrestrained, bad, unskillful qualities of desire and aversion would become overwhelming. For this reason, they practice restraint, protecting the faculty of sight and achieving their restra- its restraint. So uh, that is quite a nice translation, actually. Uh, often this is translated in a very obscure way. But this is quite a good one, which makes uh, good sense of what is going on here. So this is what we meant when we're talking about the restraint before, the very first of the four factors of right effort. This is really what we're talking about. Yeah. So you have the eye faculty, because you have an eye, you see stuff, and because you see things, um, you tend to get caught up in the feature and details. What does it mean to be caught up in the feature and details? And what it means is that when you see something, sometimes it's like your eyes stop at that thing. Yeah, you see something you like and you stop there. And it leaves a residue in your mind afterwards. You're not able to just carry on to the next sight or to hearing something or to thinking about something. But it's as if you are stuck on that thing. And this is the opposite of restraint. This is when you have been caught by that sensory object. Yeah, you see something that you really like, maybe it's a person, or maybe it's a thing, or whatever it is, or it's a nice thought or whatever about something, or maybe it's a sad thought, something you don't like, and you get caught up in those things, and then it carries on into the future. Mindfulness is the opposite. Mindfulness is the ability 
to go with the flow, not to be caught up by the things in the world, yeah? to, to continue carrying on, staying with what is present in the present moment. So this is what this means. And there are almost anything in the sensory realm can be an object that catches you in this way and then stops you from actually just going with the flow. So this is the opposite of sense restraint. This is the opposite. This is what we want to avoid, being caught like that. Yeah? That's why we have this idea of sense restraint. Uh, and uh, it's important to understand that this does not refer to all the tiny little things. Uh, there are always going to be tiny desires and tiny, perhaps, tiny little bit of ill will and all of that. Uh, and that is not really the problem. What is, well, it is a problem further on. Uh, but at this point, the idea is just to overcome the big things in life, the big defilements, uh, the really big desires, and the big and medium-sized ill will. Uh, that is what this is really about. Uh, so, uh, because of that, because you realize that uh, you will get caught up in these things, uh, and they will lead to an imbalance in the mind, uh, that imbalance is just another aspect of suffering, uh, Yeah, you lead, you lead to all kinds of suffering, because you realize that... Uh, um, uh, it will lead to desire and aversion, as it says here. They will become overwhelming. For this reason, you practice the restraint. You protect the faculty of sight. Yeah? And then you achieve its restraint as a consequence. So protecting here is the Pali word is gutta. Gutta, I think it's gutta. Um, something like that. I haven't got the Pali here. Uh, and gutta means like to guard so you guard the eye faculty. And of course, the guarding faculty in Buddhism is mindfulness. Yeah? So to be able to guard the eye faculty, you already need some degree of mindfulness so that you know what is going on. Without that mindfulness, if you have no idea what's going on, suddenly, whoops, you're angry, and you didn't really know where it came from. You have no idea what happened. But if you have mindfulness, you can see these things arising. You can see the desire about to take shape, or you can see the little bit of ill will coming into existence, and then the restraint becomes possible because of that. So the first factor here is to have some degree of mindfulness. Now, what is interesting here, and what makes this kind of difficult, is that if you remember... We are talking now about the sixth factor of the Noble Eightfold Path, right effort. The seventh factor is called right mindfulness. Yeah? Right effort leads to right mindfulness on the Noble Eightfold Path. One comes before the other one. But now I'm saying that you need mindfulness to have right effort. So this is kind of problematic. Yeah? So how are we going to do this? If you haven't even got to mindfulness yet on the Noble Eightfold Path, how can we already have it so as to actually practice right effort? And the idea here is that mindfulness comes in a large number of degrees. And the mindfulness that we talk about when we talk about the Noble Eightfold Path is already a very developed kind of mindfulness. That kind of mindfulness is the mindfulness when you sit down, you're watching your breath, you have a high degree of clarity, you have almost no thoughts going through your mind. That is what we're talking about when we talk about Samma Sati or right mindfulness. But the mindfulness that is required to do sense restraint is a much lesser degree of mindfulness. It is just enough to be, have a rough idea what is happening in your mind. Yeah? Rough idea to control your life so you don't kind of shout at people and you say the wrong things and you do, the, uh, do bad actions. This is really the idea of mindfulness at this stage. So to remember that these things come in grades, in large, large, large number of degrees, is actually a very important part of this. And then you can understand how this is to be done. So by guarding 
The faculty is that you're actually using the mindfulness that you have already. All of us have some degree of mindfulness. And then through by doing that, you're improving that mindfulness stage-wise until it becomes a power in its own right. And then once you have that mindfulness, and once you have the ability to see what is going on in your mind to some extent, then the next thing, when you see something about to arise that you know shouldn't really be arising, then you can do something about it. Yeah, and then what you do about that usually is using your wisdom, using your reflection to overcome it. And this is the things I was talking about before, the idea of uh, um, remembering the danger in these things that they lead to suffering is one of those. So you kind of withdraw that hand very quickly from the hot plate. Yeah, uh, or uh, you use, or uh, if you understand, if you don't understand fully the suffering, so the hand doesn't withdraw, then you have to reflect on it in the right way so as to overcome that problem. And I will talk a lot about that uh, this later on, how to use reflection in such a way as to uh, reduce the uh, ill will, the anger, and also the desires to some extent. Uh, okay, we, okay. Uh, so let's just uh, quickly just read through that first paragraph before we uh, stop for now. When they hear a sound with their ears, when they smell an odor with their nose, when they taste a flavor with the tongue, when they feel a touch with their body, when they know a thought with their minds, they don't get caught up in the features and details. If the faculty of mind was left unrestrained, bad, unskillful qualities of desire and aversion would become overwhelming. For this reason, they practice restraint, protecting the faculty of mind, achieving its restraint. This is called the effort to restrain. So the same idea again with all the six faculties, including the mind itself, because sometimes things just arise in the mind. Sometimes you don't need any external Stimulus, you just get it from the straight from the mind, like when you're dreaming or fantasizing about something, and that is often enough in its own right to give rise to the defilements. So, um, there you are. That is the first of the four uh, right efforts. And uh, we're going to have a look at the other ones, not now because it's already getting a little bit too late, but uh, that is the uh, beginning of that. Uh, Okay, so that is uh, all for now. There will be uh, a guided meditation and then uh, some Q&A this evening. So if you want to take part in that, uh, that happens at 7.30 tonight. So I'll see you back again then. Here.